casting out demons, how and by whom. In today's episode, we talk about the act or the process of casting out demons. How is it done and who does it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is podcast 055, podcast 55. And today we want to have a biblical conversation with you about the crazy world in which we live as it pertains to the demonic. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's eye view perspective of a complex issue confronting our culture, the church and you, as we apply God's word to make sense of it all. At the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources for further study just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. All right, Keith, so casting out demons, who and how. I know that we've, uh, we've been talking about this and we've kind of been beating around the bush as we've talked about the occult. Um, and so this is, uh, it almost seems like part two from that podcast we were doing a couple weeks ago, almost the to-be-continued part. Well, in some sense, Mark, it is. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed exorcism and what some call deliverance ministries and how these practices differed from what we find in the Bible. And to be fair, I believe that there are many good and well-intended people who have endeavored to document what seemed to work at the time with the intention of helping others. And suffice it to say, their intentions were good. Okay, but I feel like there's a but coming in this. Well, sort of. What I mean to say is this. Sometimes what seems to work may not actually work, but only appears to work. And in matters like these, trial and error or experimentation is probably not the best approach. When you look at the New Testament, indications are that when Jesus and his disciples cast out demons, the demons stayed gone, never to return. And the same cannot be said of when others intervene, either on their own behalf or in some other way. And we see this in Matthew 12 and in Acts 19. Let me start with the Matthew 12 uh, record. In the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 43, chapter 12, we read this. This is Jesus talking. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And what we see here is a situation that appears to have been cleared up. Apparently the demon left on its own, and the individual sort of put their own house in order. And the demon returns to find the house, shall we say, swept and cleared and put in order by the person and he brings with him more demons, and the worst state is worse than the first. And I suppose if there's a principle here, it's that human agency rather than supernatural agency doesn't get the job done. And to one extent or another, that's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we had that uh, case in Acts 19 where the itinerant exorcists were trying to invoke the name of Jesus, whom this Paul teaches, to cast out demons. And it didn't work too well. And that's why we have to differentiate between what appears to work and what the Bible teaches or incorporating something that we heard or saw somewhere rather than sticking with the text of Scripture. And so let me just walk you through the passage in Acts 19, beginning in verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So everybody's seeing all these miracles so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13, 
Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, these people were trying to help this victim of demonic possession. And it, it appears they must have seen Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they tried to incorporate what they thought they saw. And so they took, in a manner of speaking, and I don't mean to be glib or crass, they took his stuff and made it their stuff and thought they would give it a try. And it didn't turn out so well. And these men ended up being beaten and injured. And so I think we need to be careful of because casting out demons isn't something we do with trial and error. We don't try a little bit of this and a little bit of that, no matter how good our intentions are. And these men in Acts, they weren't Christians, neither were the people they were helping, but they were trying to help. But despite their good intentions, it didn't end well. And so while I think one definite takeaway from this is this is not a task for those who aren't Christ followers, another takeaway is that, as I said a moment ago, it's an undertaking that we don't engage in via trial and error. We don't want to experiment. We don't want to try a little bit of this or a little bit of that or this incantation or that incantation that we might have heard or read about somewhere because there's just too much at stake. And that's a, it appears to be what these men did despite the best of intentions. So watch this play out in verse 13. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. By the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They didn't know who this Jesus was. They didn't really know what he taught. They just knew that this Paul guy had used that name to cast out demons. And so they were going to try those two names out, Jesus and Paul. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Yeah, and I think um, there's, you know, that with the passage in Matthew and then this passage, one of the things it brings back to my mind is this whole idea of can a demon possess a Christian? In Matthew, you know, it talks about the house is all swept and it's all clean and the demon comes back with even more vengeance. Um, and here, you know, obviously these demons are like, look, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you guys are. And then this demon takes it out on them. And so um, maybe... Can we get to that question a little bit? Can a demon possess a Christian? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark. Actually, I believe the answer to this question is fundamental to understanding the teaching of this podcast as it relates to casting out demons. To understand how a person can be freed from demonic possession is to understand the answer to the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed and its implications? Okay, so how is that? Well, we have to be careful here, as I said before. There's no direct instruction given on the matter of casting out demons. That said, I do believe we can distill a principle from Scripture or a couple of passages. First, I think we saw last time we discussed this, that Jesus gave some of his followers whom he sent out two by two the ability or the authority or the power to cast out demons. He gave them authority and power. And nowhere in the New Testament does it say that all Christians possess the same type of apostolic authority or special ability to say, come out, and the demon comes out. Or as Jesus said, he said, come out of him, and they came out. So we want to avoid the pitfall of saying that everything that we see in the Bible that they did back then that we can do today. I mean, Moses parted the Red Sea and Jesus walked on the water, and we can't do that today. No one can. So with these cautions in mind, let's start to answer your question. Can a born-again Christian be possessed 
fully taken over by a demon? And the answer I would have to give is no. Okay, so uh, in the spirit of our podcast, uh, where would you find that chapter and verse, biblically speaking? I think you, we would want to start with 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 16. And let me read that for you now. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Do not be tied together with unbelievers. For, because, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or, what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord, what connection has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So first of all, let's understand this passage is not specifically about demonic possession. But if you look at it, through, there's a series of rhetorical questions that does shed light on the principle. Initially, you see a command. Believers are not to be linked up, engaged with, attached to unbelievers in certain ways. They are to be separate. There's a a variety of yoked or bound together or tied up with, but it speaks also to marriage, to ministry, to certain business relationships. And you'll see all this play out in a moment. In fact, let me read the rhetorical questions that the passage asks. And a rhetorical question, for those who don't know, are questions that are asked with, a, with, a, with an implied answer. And in this case, the answer is no. So let's take a look at these questions. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. What fellowship has light with darkness? Answer, none. What accord has Christ with Bilal? None. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Answer, none. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. And then it says, because we are the temple of the living God. And so the only answer to all these questions is none. Now, look at the first question of verse 15. What accord has Christ with Bilal? Now look at verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, false gods or demons typically? Answer, none. Why? Because we are the temple of the living God. And if you look at a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 3.16, It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God lives in every believer. Now, can you see where this is headed? God and Satan, Christ and Bilal, the temple of God and idols, like oil and water, don't mix. They can't mix. They won't mix. Why is that? Because God will not share his glory with another, nor will he share space with demons. And as believers, as Christ followers, As born-again Christians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. And based on what I'm reading here in 2 Corinthians 6, I suspect that the Holy Spirit, not trying to be funny here, doesn't accept roommates like demons. He won't share us with Satan. He won't share us with a demon. Why don't you expand a little bit on that? Okay. If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as Paul puts it in these passages in the letter to the church at Corinth, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then Satan can't. If we are temples of the Holy Spirit, such temples have nothing to do with demons. That's the principle. They cannot be linked up with demons if they are linked up and indwelt by God. Satan has a counterfeit for everything that God does. Uh, John Calvin calls Satan the ape of God. And so... When you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're already possessed. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You cannot be possessed by Satan. Why? 
2 Corinthians 6, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Okay, so I can see kind of where you're going, but what does this all have to do with the casting out demons then? Okay, it, it, all, it, it all ties in here. It, it has this to do. Darkness flees in the presence of light, and in this case, the light of the world, the light of the gospel, the regenerating light of the Holy Spirit that brings us from the kingdom of darkness into God's marvelous light as temples of God, as temples of the Holy Spirit. And to that extent, we, our souls, our bodies, can have no fellowship, no partnership or connection to a demon because the Holy Spirit already possesses us and no demon can cast out God. God will not tolerate its presence. Okay, so Christians cannot be uh, possessed by a demon, uh, but... What you're saying as far as casting out demons is... Is this. Lead a demon-possessed person to Christ, and God casts the demon out of his temple. Getting back to the idea of the Holy Spirit not, not accepting roommates. I hate to use that terminology, but the metaphor, the word picture, I think is helpful. God, as I said before, will not share his glory with another, nor his temple with another. And no demon can withstand him. So now let's shift gears. You remember when his disciples, Jesus' disciples, failed to cast a demon out in the gospel? And Jesus said, they, this one only comes out by fasting and prayer. When you look at the passage, if Jesus gave them the power to cast out the demons, what went wrong? And I have no reason other than to expect that maybe the disciples and their humanity became overconfident. They weren't humbly and spiritually and carefully prepared. And I suspect that's why we find the verse where Jesus says this one comes out only by much prayer and fasting. Mm. Also understand that since we aren't among the 72 sent out and we're not apostles, the power isn't invested in us, but is invested in the gospel, the message of salvation. The power is in the gospel. That's why we read in Romans 1:16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live, shall survive by his faith. Deliverance, true deliverance, comes through the gospel. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think that set you free involves misconceptions, involves your bondage to sin, and your bondage to Satan. So if you are saved, you cannot be demon-possessed. You become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, when we talk about Christians being possessed, there is no evidence in the Bible of a Christian ever being possessed. So then what would you say to those people who would point to the fact that um, in the Gospels it says that the devil entered Judas? Well, that's, that's a, a, a passage that confuses a lot of people. And I understand that some are confused by this, uh, but there's no indication anywhere in the Gospels that Judas was ever saved. I mean, in the Gospel of John, it talks about how Judas regularly stole from the money bag, from the money box. And if you remember the occasion where Mary anointed Jesus' feet with the expensive nard, and Judas and others complained about the waste of money, Jesus rebukes them, and Judas is singled out as a hypocritical thief who stole the money. And when Jesus washed uh, the disciples' feet in John 13, Jesus indicated that all of his disciples were clean except one, Judas, and that clean is sort of a double entendre, a metaphor for being saved or born again. And right after this, you realize that as soon as Judas dipped the bread, that the devil entered him. So there's really no biblical evidence or indication that Judas was a believer. 
And as early as John chapter 6, Jesus indicated that Judas was not with him. You know, he said, uh, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, as it says in the passage, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so using Judas as an example, I believe, is quite a stretch. And therefore, you can't use that to say, well, you know, he got possessed so all Christians could be possessed. Okay, I think that's a pretty good uh, explanation kind of of where you're coming from and then how we get there with Judas. So then how are demons cast out and by whom? How does this work? If there's no real biblical procedure, how would it actually work in real life today? Well, let me kind of keep going. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I do want to... I want to kind of draw this together. The Bible teaches us never to verbally revile fallen angels. And even the, the uh, archangel Michael wouldn't rebuke Satan when they contended for the body of Moses in the book of Jude. And so it's really not for us to, to rebuke them or to say, come out of them. Uh, the power isn't in us. We're not among the apostles or the original 72 sent out by Jesus. But what we can do is we can pray, we can fast. And we can explain or present the gospel to the rightful owner of the body. We can try and speak to the victim, not the demon, and encourage the victim to embrace Christ. Wait, so are you saying that we, as everyday believers, uh, can speak to the victims then? Yes, uh, Christians can do this. And when you think about it, what else are you going to do? You can't threaten the demon. I remember reading a book by one of the deliverance ministry people where they talked about they got a demon to leave by threatening to torture them. And, you know, I don't know what I could do to a demon to torture it. And so it has no physical body and it has greater powers than mine. But what you can do, what you can do is try to lead the person to Christ. Uh, You know... And so Jesus speaks of prayer and fasting, and I remember what it says in James about the effective fervent prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. And so I would pray, I would fast, I would prepare spiritually and mentally, I'd pray with the person, alongside the person, and I would try to articulate the gospel so that that person could understand it and choose, if they wanted to, to embrace Christ, becoming, as it were, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we noted before, Christ has no fellowship with Bilal, and the temple of, the, of God has no part with idols or demons. And believers are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit. And so the old condition would pass away, and the new life in Christ would begin. It's kind of a 2 Corinthians 5.17 scenario. And when you go back through the pages of church history, this view is not novel. This was John Wesley's view back in the 1700s, prayer and evangelism. You'll find a record of his approach to demonic possession in his book. It's, it's actually the Journal of John Wesley. It's found in chapter 3. And I also found another account by one of his assistants where Wesley came to the aid of a demon-possessed person after they determined her problems weren't medical. And this account, and I'll read from it, is written by one of his assistants, and he said this. When Mr. Wesley began praying, she began screaming so that a mob quickly gathered about the house outside. However, he prayed on till the convulsions and the screaming ceased, and she came to her senses much sooner than usual. Mr. Wesley pressed her to call upon God for the power to believe and then prayed with her. She began to pray again and continued in her senses longer than she had done the month before. 
I went to prayer for her and exhorted her, prayed for faith, and her agony ceased. So this is prayer and evangelism. And this, this lady came to Christ. Martin Luther followed the same pattern. And he refused, absolutely refused to do any kind of ritual. He said he would not do it because that would be tempting God. Okay, so to summarize, basically what we know from the Bible um, and that as Christ followers, um, we're not some sort of specialized exorcist. Um, we don't have any specific special power to cast out demons, but we need to pray earnestly and evangelize to the victim, so the person who's possessed, uh, much like Wesley did, and and we get people to pray along with us towards that goal. Uh, but we don't need to do really any of these ritual things or use any of these props or instruments or anything like that. Um, and essentially, this whole idea is is kind of comes out of that idea where Jesus speaks that you know prayer and fasting is the thing that casts out demons, and it's. It's ultimately the gospel that saves and transforms and leads um, really to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? That's it. That's it. And if the victim chooses Christ, then they become the temple of the Holy Spirit and are set free. And this is, what I, this is why I base that on uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 16. God in the end does the casting out. His power is contained in the gospel, you might say, which transfers lost people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's why a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. They belong to God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not things visible or things invisible, nor angels, nor powers. That's what it says in Romans. And Jesus in John 10 says, nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand because the Holy Spirit indwells us and he has no connection with a demon. So it all comes down to prayer and evangelism. That's it. All we can do is pray for them, uh, have people pray for us and with us as we pray for them, and try to explain the gospel that they might believe and be saved. Well, I think we're out of time, Mark. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you'd like additional resources, and we have quite a few on the uh, website this time, go to www.gracetoliveradio.org and hit the resource button. If you have questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at keith at hillside.org. If you'd like to learn more about Hillside Church, visit our website, www.hillside.org. In the meantime, we'd like to invite you to worship with us on Sunday at 8 or 9.30 or 11. In the meantime, whatever your podcast platform, please give us a good rating. Share us with your friends. Make comments. It helps us expand the ministry. This is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler saying God bless you and God keep you.